Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lovati. I'm very excited today to be joined by Dr. Stephen O'Connor of the National Institute of Mental Health. NIMH is the leading government organization for research into mental disorders. Over his career, Dr. O'Connor has led many studies into suicide assessment, intervention, and prevention. In addition to his research, Dr. O'Connor has also served as a clinician for the University of Louisville's Depression Center. We get into quite a bit on this episode, including the shift that is taking place amongst prevention and intervention strategies related to suicide. We talk about the zero suicide model and how that's being implemented in our various healthcare systems. We talk about some of the methods that are out there for assessing one's suicidal intensity, which is actually now the preferred term for suicidal ideation. We also get into the post-traumatic stress associated with the survived suicide attempt. And finally, we talk about the ideas of thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness and how they influence the suicide attempt. I found this to be a very informative and powerful episode, and I hope you do as well. One thing I wanted to throw out there, as a new podcast, it would be incredibly helpful if you could give us a follow and leave us a rating or review on your platform of choice. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com W-O-T-W for writing on the walls. That's better H-E-L-P dot com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Dr. O'Connor, how are you? Doing fine, Rob. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. I really appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Sure, sure thing. There, there's a question I like to kick things off with. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we can use this to start the conversation. I know there are a lot of different areas we'll probably go today. Um, but just speaking in general terms, I'm wondering how specifically suicide or suicide loss has impacted your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I appreciate the question. You know, I've been fortunate. I haven't had anyone in my inner circle uh, die by suicide, and I've, I have not had lived experience um, with having suicidal intensity before. Um, I think a lot of my exposure around the topic um, began when I was a case manager uh, living in Seattle, Washington, and all of a sudden being thrust into sort of this really um, just very emotionally laden type of experience with someone. And I was young, you know, I was in my early twenties. Um, 
And uh, I just kind of struggled with how do you support people that are having these types of experiences and not really understanding that much about it. This was, you know, back in the, what, the early 2000s. So standard of care back then was no harm contracts. So we were literally asked people, you know, to sign a contract that says that they won't hurt themselves um, as if that was some type of intervention. And then we would leave for the day and then we would come back. And um, it was, it was uh, an obvious failing, uh, but we didn't at that time, I don't think that we had enough evidence about what really could help. So then um, I was fortunate enough to start working uh, in the laboratory of Marsha Lenahan, who developed dialectical behavior therapy on the evenings and weekends after my you know, daytime job was over. And uh, just really, you know, was working with one of the experts, really leaders in the field who have developed the field of suicide risk reduction. Um, and, and that was like my main experience, I think, that started me off on this journey. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Pretty cool to hear about your experience with Marsha Linehan. Definitely familiar with her work. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell me a little bit about uh, what your day-to-day looks like today? Curious about your roles with uh, National Institute of Mental Health, um, as well as your involvement with University of Louisville, if that's something you're currently still involved with. Just just wondering about what that looks like for you today. Yeah, sure. So uh, the work that I did at, Univer- at yeah, University of Louisville, um, I was uh, um, a, a assistant or associate director for the depression center we had there. There's a national network of depression centers spans across the United States, and University of Louisville was one of the founding members of that. So we had a, a, a clinical site of excellence, and we also did research there to help people that, um, you know, dealt with unipolar depression and bipolar depressive disorders. Um, and, you know, I did my own research there. A lot of it was focused on helping people who have recently survived a, a very serious suicide attempt. And um, then they're sort of transitioning back into, into the community, back into their lives. Uh, that's for a lot of people, that's a pretty tough transition to make. Um, so a lot of the interventions that, you know, we were testing were focused on, on helping people with that journey. Some of that took place at the VA hospital in Louisville, working with colleagues there. Uh, but then I joined NIMH um, in December of 2019. And when I did that, no longer was focused on my own research, but have this position as a program officer where um, we try and help support research that's being done all over you know, the United States and literally all over the world, trying to fund different researchers who are testing different strategies um, to help people that you know are at elevated risk of suicide. So that's a lot of what I do now. Um, I think I probably have about 40 grants in my portfolio. They're testing interventions and risk reduction strategies all across the age range, everything from upstream preventive science, where you're trying to do universal um, intervention strategies, you know, that's going to help everybody, regardless of what their risk level is, all the way to people that are really identified as being having acute suicide intensity. So try and find ways to rapidly reduce their risk. Um, and a lot of that research is happening out in real uh, healthcare systems. So it's not being supported in a research laboratory. This is really taking 
evidence-based approaches and really can see how well do they work when you are testing them under real real world circumstances. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you, you talk a little bit about the reintegration of someone who has survived a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. And, and something I believe you've done some research on in the past that I'm hoping you could share with us is some of the research around the post-traumatic stress associated with someone who has survived a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that something you could dive into detail a little bit about? Yeah, I, I can. There's not a lot of literature on that specific topic. Um, so when I was at University of Washington, uh, I worked on the consult liaison psychiatry service. So the consult service is there to kind of um, help address mental health issues uh, that are kind of secondary to someone surviving the medical realities of their of like their injury. You know, so if you if you survive a suicide attempt and you have um, survived a, uh, a gunshot wound or a drug poisoning, you, you know, you might have to be admitted to um, hospital so that um, you you can medically heal. And then once you're stable medically, then there's kind of the process of, of then the focus primarily be- becomes on mental health. And I worked on this consult liaison service, so we would have different um, um, medical groups, you know, in the hospital contact us. And I, I had never really, this hadn't occurred to me, but, you know, we were sort of the first people who would um, help talk to people who had come very close to dying by suicide. And, um, I mean, it was really a, a powerful experience. And I just realized that this is an area where we just don't really have a clue as to what people are experiencing or how to support them. So I spent some of my time developing um, a brief intervention that I called the teachable moment brief intervention, because it was really interesting. You know, I came to realize that a lot of people who had been very focused on uh, planning to, to be dead when, they're, when, when they did not die by virtue of their suicide attempt, they they were actually um, really thankful uh, that they had been given a second chance. And um, I tried to understand that better, spend time with people, talk to them about their experiences, and then figure out like kind of like what was happening and then how can you how can you prolong that as people go back into the community. So we we did a couple uh, clinical trials, one at University of Washington at one at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, kind of testing that out. But one thing that we stumbled upon, as you always do when you do research, is new questions. You learn more about these issues. And one of those issues was about uh, the traumatic experience that um, suicide attempt survivors might go through um, in their journey of recovery once they, they are admitted to, you know, the acute care center and then kind of make their way back into the community. And, um, you know, with one of the, one of the kind of follow-up studies that we did at Vanderbilt was we, we asked people to, uh, rate their PTSD symptoms specific to either their attempt or the experience of their hospitalization that's often a very tough experience for people. Um, and, and then we you know, interviewed people at one and three months afterwards. And we found that um, 
the total amount of post-traumatic stress related to the suicide attempt or the hospitalization, it was associated with a greater risk of having ongoing uh, greater suicide ideation intensity and um, greater experience of feeling disconnected from other people uh, and feeling uh, like a burden on other people too, which are two experiences, you know, that are part of this interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. So we're just trying to better understand that um, because I guess probably underappreciated what, you know, just how, how tough that transition back to the community can be for people. And that they're having people kind of, you know, trying to figure out how do they talk to them about it or support them. They themselves are kind of maybe struggling with um, the repercussions of, of what, what that experience was like too. So we just wanted to try and understand that. I appreciate you sharing that. And, and I appreciate you sharing the experience of someone feeling thankful or gratitude having survived the suicide attempt. And, and what I'm wondering is if from this research or in any other research that you're aware of, um, if they have been able to point to any patterns um, that indicate the likelihood of someone reattempting suicide after surviving an attempt, is that, is that something that was fleshed out as part of this research? Well, I published a different paper using data that uh, my colleague Kate Comtois at University of Washington had collected as part of a, a larger study. She interviewed uh, about 200 people coming into that same trauma center uh, in Seattle, Washington, who had survived a suicide attempt. They interviewed them, just big battery of questions with people in the emergency department, and then interviewed people uh, about 75% six months later. So there's a couple things. Uh, number one, you know, the vast majority of people that were interviewed as part of the study really felt like it was a good opportunity for them. Like they did not mind having the opportunity to share this information yeah. in the in the ED, you know, shortly after their attempt. Because I think sometimes people will be like, wow, that's really insensitive. You're just going to go in there and like ask these people a lot of questions. But it's all about how you do it and the way that you explain what you want to do and how you get informed consent. And it actually... Uh, was really strongly appreciated by the vast majority of people that were in the study, which is great. Um, but once one follow-up study that I did as part of that was we um, took this one question that was part of the interview where it asks about sort of the motivating factors behind the suicide attempt. And there were there's 28 different options that people could answer yes, no to about was this one of the reasons why you made a suicide attempt? And that's a, lot, that's a lot of answers. So what we did, we, we used a data-informed way to sort of collapse those into four, four large categories. And those categories dealt with, I made an attempt because I felt like it would help with the emotional pain that I was feeling. I did it to help communicate something to, to someone or somebody. Um, I did this because to me, this was a perceived better alternative to living. Or I did this because of um, a lot of um, self-deprecation and kind of like self-hatred. The, the attempts, about 99% of people reported that a function of their attempt was because of the emotional pain they were in. So it's ubiquitous. Yeah, um, That's important to know. 
but it also meant that we couldn't really study that because there wasn't enough um, uh, variability uh, with that question in, in the, the model that we were testing. But with the other questions, uh, what we found was that if there was an interpersonal function to the attempt, that there was a significant reduction in the likelihood that someone would make another attempt over six months. And I kind of interpreted that as, you know, there was, there was a desire to get help. There was a desire to reach out and connect to other people um, versus uh, kind of more of a internal process of, you know, this is a, about something that's only happening within me, and this is going to solve a problem within me. With with the other, with when there's an interpersonal aspect to it, it seemed like there really was a desire to to connect and to communicate. And I I think that, you know, when when families and um, networks, social networks, when they when it really hits them that wow, like we almost lost someone. I think maybe that can be a teachable moment for them too, to kind of look look at maybe what they're doing in ways that they could be um, more supportive as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And and you bring up this idea of the teachable moment, um, and you you referred to that previously in the conversation. I'm hoping you could expand on mm -hmm. that a little bit, and how you've found that to be an effective mechanism for someone who is struggling with suicidality. Yeah, sure. Well, um, there's a, a small literature around this idea of teachable moments. And uh, one way to think about it is smoking cessation. So a lot of people say, I'm going to have a planned date at which I'm going to stop smoking. But we know that if you recruit people from the emergency department and you uh, conduct a smoking cessation study, the group that gets the placebo, like the non-intervention, they still stop smoking at a higher rate than those people that otherwise they don't come to ED, but they have like a planned stopping date. That's because there's something about that emotional context, right? Of like an unexpected event happening. So let's take, for example, if you're a parent, you take in um, your child to the emergency department because they're having trouble breathing. They're having an asthma attack. And the doc says, well, do you smoke? And you say, yeah. And they say, well, the secondhand smoke is kind of leading, you know, to the, the asthma attack issue. That's something where it's like, ding, ding, ding. Oh, okay. Like I'm contributing to this and I need to make a change right now because this is really emotional for me. And this is my social role. It's really driving home again, who I am to this child. I'm their father, I'm their, their caretaker, you know, I'm responsible for them. And a person does a better job of seeing the pros and cons of, you know, Smoking, like weighing the risks ultimately, like what do I get out of this? What are the rewards versus the, the risk involved? So that same thing can be applied um, in that model for helping people who have survived suicide attempts. Um, you know, what the intervention I created was intended to do in a very brief type of way. You know, we're talking about a 45 minute type of intervention, which is kind of go in talk with someone who's on a medical or surgical floor, maybe in an ICU, and facilitate a discussion with them that's very much about sort of putting the pieces together, and it's more discovery-oriented. Uh, it's not so much, I'm here to solve a bunch of problems with you and give you a bunch of ideas about how to cope, because I don't think people are there, and like that will come later, 
But in this moment, let's just take some time to try to make sense like of why this happened so that hopefully, you know, there's insight gain that, you know, could be applied to reduce the likelihood this happens again. Right. You know, when I talk to, to some people, like one person had survived a self-inflicted gunshot wound and said that when he woke up having been intubated and he saw his family looking down on him, you know, with the look in their eyes, the tears, tears in their eyes, and just so thankful that he's alive. For him, he just said that was so poignant. And that was when he really realized that he was somebody's like, okay, like I am, I have struggled, but it's not just me. Like I'm connected with these other people. I'm, I play a role in their life. I'm important to them. So that's the social role that is more, more defined for him. And, you know, he felt that very strongly, this was not something that he wanted to pursue again in the future. And so that was the space he was in, you know, immediately after he had come back to consciousness. And, and that's the type of, I, I feel like that's very genuine, you know, that's like a genuine experience. Uh, and so trying to help support people with identifying that. And there, there might be all kinds of shameful experiences that they might be feeling, they might be embarrassed, they might not be happy. Sometimes, you know, this didn't happen because of, and they got a lot of, of other issues that they're going to have to deal with. Um, but, but trying to help people focus on their own personal life journey and their recovery and, you know, um, trying to just help them think about what can they take from this experience as they go forward. That's, that's a lot of the essence of what you try and do in that intervention that, that we developed. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, but it makes me wonder, you use the example of the smoking cessation mm -hmm. and maybe someone uh, having a higher fidelity or high, higher likelihood of quitting if they realize that their smoking is negatively impacting someone they care about. And, and what I'm wondering with this intervention or teachable moment around a survived suicide attempt is if you found that it's more effective one way or another, if the teachable moment is around the impact that it's having on the individual who survived the attempt. So either the, uh, the negative consequences from a health standpoint directly related to the attempt versus the effect that it's having on their social network, as you described. Um, if, if there's one mechanism that tends to be more successful or impactful than another. Yeah, that's a really great question. I, I don't think that we know the answer to that, honestly. I think that it's not uncommon for people who feel very disconnected leading up to their attempt to actually have a social network that's available but they objectively feel very disconnected. And sometimes you like it's there and it's available. And so it's more of helping someone plug back into that. But it's definitely the case sometimes that someone just is actually disconnected and they don't have much of a social network. And, um, you know, this is a little brief intervention. This really isn't going to like, exercise this experience of having suicidal intensity from anybody. Um, but I think you just have to be realistic about what this could do um, for different people who have different types of social networks. 
I, you know, it's interesting. Some of the people we talk with, they had very severe medical injuries and they still felt, you know, very thankful to, to be alive and they were very recovery focused. So I think that, you know, it's, um, I think you just want to try and find, find ways to support people after a very painful experience has happened. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what else to say. No, I, I appreciate you explaining that a little bit further. And, and what it makes me wonder is some of the cases that we hear about where one's suicidal intensity almost seems to be a chronic condition. Mm-hmm. Um, just this week, actually, I was speaking with an individual who shared with me about one of their family members who has been attempting suicide for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that based on your research is the outlier or is that something that uh, we're working to understand better that may be as common as a successful intervention? Well, um, I, I, you know, chronicity, I think maybe you could think of behaviorally. I often think <clears throat> about people who have longer histories of suicide intensity as kind of maybe there's an entrenchment. And that's part of that brief intervention is we talked just a little bit about that. And I published a paper way back. This is actually my dissertation focused on the idea of suicide entrenchment. And just that idea of once you, once this becomes kind of more of, you know, what you anticipate as your life story, <laughs> if you will, mm-hmm. then it, it, it's kind of part of your armatorium um, of, of ways that you might, you know, kind of go about living your life. Honestly, it's like, this is kind of an expectation that this is kind of, this is part of my life. This potentially is, you know, the way that, um, you know, that things are going to go from, from here on out. In, in the paper that I published, there's a, a case example of someone I worked with who very much had that presentation. And, you know, the treatment was as much about experimenting with life as if you weren't going to die by suicide and just kind of trying that on. Mm. as a different approach, but just experimenting with it. I'm not saying that, you know, you have to, you you can never go back to that because I don't have that kind of control, you know, or power, but it's really like, why don't you just experiment with this and see what that's like is living your life as if, you know, you weren't um, just kind of leaving your life up to chance or planning to die by suicide. And, and, you know, what, you know, how does that change the way that you see people? Does it change like the way that you plan for the future? And, you know, thankfully, this person actually got kind of enamored with that. And it helped kickstart getting back into the workforce, you know, reconnecting with his, his grown children, thinking about ways to support them in their future. But you just got to be realistic. You know, if if this is something that someone has had experiences with over the course of their life, it's going to take time, you know, to kind of trade that in for other ways of kind of interacting with, with stress or with life. And so I think you just kind of have to move at their speed too. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it makes me think about something that you brought up earlier, which is the, 
the idea or feeling of disconnection mm -hmm. from one social network being a pretty common factor in one suicidal intensity. And it, it makes me think of something that I read in, in one of your publications, and there were a couple ideas in there. I'm hoping I get them right. Mm -hmm. um, as being factors in one suicidal intensity, which are the ideas of um, thwarted belongingness and perceived burdensomeness. Uh, I hope I'm getting mm -hmm. those right. And uh, if so, are you able to explain those factors uh, in, in more depth and in how you found that they impact one's uh, intensity regarding their suicidality? Yeah, sure. So those two factors are part of Thomas Joyner's interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. So they really kind of help explain in these very big buckets how it is that there are these conditions that get intensified that would lead someone to have suicidal thoughts. And then, you know, part of that other theory that he has is that there's an acquired capability that kind of differentiates someone who has thoughts of suicide from people who make attempts to people who die by suicide, because it's a very difficult thing, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, uh, to move in that direction. So in terms of the, yeah, the thwart of belongingness and the perceived burdensomeness, there are um, um, validated measures that capture those constructs, and they have probably been included in thousands of studies at this point. Yeah, uh, we you know we included them in that study of PTSD related to the suicide attempt, and uh, we included them in some work with uh, veterans as well that were part of a group-based therapy. The the group-based therapy was super interesting because. That is a natural context where if you feel disconnected, now all of a sudden you are around other people. And if you feel like you're a burden, you have an opportunity to contribute <laughs> to other people's recovery process. And the great thing of doing that within the VA is that they also have the shared experience and shared identity that goes beyond you know, their current clinical status they they all served and that means a lot to them so it you know we found in that research that as people attended more sessions they had um, a greater decrease in feeling disconnected with that sort of belongingness aspect we also found that um you know they they there really was this experience of making yourself vulnerable and sharing your story in order to build the intimacy of the kind of shared experience with people. And that's not for everybody. It's not for every person. It's not for every veteran. But that was, it seemed like it was kind of a necessary journey that people had to go on was to make themselves vulnerable, share that experience in order to kind of develop those ties with people. And that intimacy seemed like it was the most important aspect for the veteran. Sure, they picked up some skills along the way, but that wasn't really the thrust of those groups. You know, it wasn't a skills-oriented group, something like dialectical behavior skills groups. It was more of kind of, you know, a processing slash supportive environment. And it was specifically for veterans that had come out of the inpatient um, psychiatry um, unit at that VA, and a big 
part of why they had been there was because of um, increased suicide intensity. So this was something that they were all kind of dealing with is, is very timely. And it was meant to kind of help with their transition back to the community. So just like trying to find ways to help people um, in those moments where we know the risk is high, really high when people are leaving uh, the hospital, trying to find ways to get them connected and, and help support their recovery experience. I'm hoping to pull on that a little bit further. I know you, you've done some pretty focused work and research on veterans specifically. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering if you could share any of your findings around that demographic and, and how they differ in terms of risk factors in, in suicidal intensity, as well as uh, intervention methods that maybe work better than with other groups. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a privilege to work with veterans, no doubt. I, you know, I think that it's a, it's a, it's not one, you know, homogenous group. You, you have people from all walks of life. You have people that worked in different aspects of the military. Um, and you have people that came through in, in different eras. So they just have, you know, varied experiences. Some people saw combat, some people did not. Uh, some people had pre-existing mental health issues. Some people did not. So I, I think that um, it's, it's a lot of times we kind of focus on veteran suicide prevention and as well we should, but it's also, there's just a lot of variability, you know, within uh, the people that, that you're trying to help there. You know, I think 70% of veteran suicides um, are related to firearms. And we know that the case fatality rate with firearms is about 90%. Wow compared to, to, to drug poisoning, which is about 4%. And drug poisoning still accounts for the most reasons for why people who have made a suicide attempt uh, are admitted to the hospital. So they're still severe and uh, damaging, uh, but thankfully they're, they're not um, as lethal. Uh, but when people make suicide attempts with firearms, a lot of times, unfortunately, they don't survive. So we know the veterans are at greater risk of, um, you know, dying by by firearm suicide compared to the general population. So I think that's one thing to consider. You know, I think that the reality is that I don't think that there has been a randomized controlled trial of an intervention within a specific veteran population that has shown that it reduces the risk of a suicide attempt. Mm. We we have studies that demonstrate that with many other populations, including the DOD, including with um, active military personnel, and then in the community. But we're still working on that um, within the VA specifically. There was a, a really great study on safety planning that occurred in um, a number of emergency departments. It, it wasn't a randomized controlled trial. It was more of a cohort study, but the, it was an effectiveness trial and it was really happening in emergency departments and it helped um, significantly reduce the risk of, of another suicide attempt. And this is a really brief intervention. You know, safety plans probably take about 30 minutes to create, give or take 10 minutes on either side. If you do it, you know, kind of to fidelity with the model. But you're essentially helping someone understand their own suicide risk curve, you know, understanding how they progress along this level of increased intensity, 
You help them identify their warning signs, their internal and external coping strategies, services that they can turn to if they need help, and then ways to, re to make their, their environment safer. So that could be safer storage of, of uh, medications, could be safer storage of firearms. Uh, but you have that discussion with someone. And, and then as part of that study, they also help facilitate linkage with outpatient care too. So they provided just a, a few calls to help people. Um, and they found that the safety plan in and of itself was protective. So even doing that brief type of intervention, it can have a protective effect with people, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Is that something that anyone can do and that you find is a pretty common intervention that's used in, in outpatient therapy today is the safety plan? Totally. Yeah, it is. It's become ubiquitous. There's a, a, another version of it called a crisis response plan, which is very similar. Uh, it doesn't, I don't think that it necessarily asks as much about the, the lethal means counseling piece, but you can, you can definitely add that conversation on. There's no reason why you couldn't. But yeah, those are two approaches that are widely used now. And um, they kind of become part of national guidelines where if you know, if you identify that someone has some kind of elevated suicide intensity, that you really need to do some proactive things. The, the, a study that Craig Bryan did with um, active duty military studying his crisis response planning intervention the comparison was the uh, no harm contracts that I talked about earlier. Mm. And they found that there was a significant reduction in suicide attempts among those that did this very brief crisis response plan compared to the no harm contract, which given my story that I told earlier, I mean, I found that very gratifying. They just, that's a study that had to, had to be done. And it was a randomized controlled trial, which is great too. So it has, it has even greater rigor. But yeah, these are being done. Um, care settings all over the United States. I, I think that, you know, I mean, as a, as a friend or a loved one, you can, you can have some of those conversations with someone potentially. I think you just have to be cognizant of, you know, how you support someone and kind of where you fit in, in that network of, of, their, of their support. You can certainly, as a loved one, take steps to make your environment safer, whether or not you have a conversation with someone. So safely storing your firearm or, you know, finding a safe and legal place to store firearms. If you're worried about someone's um, safety, you know, for temp could be for just a temporary period of time until they get through kind of an increased window of risk. Those are absolutely things that um, family and friends can help facilitate. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty neat to talk uh, with you about this. I've actually put together my own crisis response plan in the past for my own suicidal ideation. Hmm. And in thinking it through now, I can certainly see how that would help with the uh, the thwarted belongingness piece. Because if I recall correctly, I think one of the pieces of putting putting that document together was who who can I talk to or who can I call? Mm -hmm. And I think I remember at the time feeling that there's nobody that I can talk to about this. Mm. And then actually being able to sit down and realize that I was able to come up with quite a few folks in my inner, inner circle that I could bring this to and talk to about if I were in a period of crisis really helped me realize that there, there were other options and folks that I could turn to. Oh, that's so good. 
Yeah, you know, anybody when they're having a dark moment or they're more emotional, that any person is going to struggle to problem solve, right? To generate solutions. Yeah. Like nobody's going to do, no one's going to be at their, their optimal level uh, in that window. So it makes all the sense in the world to try and think about these things in advance so that you don't have to do that, you know, that, that type of like heavy thinking. And I mean, emotions, someone once told me emotions are like, um, you know, weather systems. It's, it's like the whole deal comes through, you know, you feel it, you experience it completely and weather systems do pass, but sometimes you just got to survive them. That's a, that's a big emphasis, you know, with safety planning is in crisis response planning, you know, you're not solving someone's problems other than their safety issue. Maybe at that time you are asking someone to power through, um, but you're trying to help develop a plan that actually could work that's personalized for them. And so then I think it's really important to communicate that to people that the safety plan, crisis response plan have a function, they have a role, but then treatment, ongoing psychotherapy and other supports, they have a different function as well. You know, they can they could potentially give you the time to explore and understand just why it is that these intensities pop up and your vulnerabilities and, you know, explore different ways to address those factors. You know, safety plan and crisis response plan, there's, it's just unrealistic to think that they could take all that on. But I think that's important to communicate because we don't want people thinking that, well, this is the only treatment, you know, because it's done so widely that this is meant to be the, the thing that addresses this when it, it addresses an aspect of it, but it's really not intended to address all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I like your example of the weather system uh, to, to try to personify what emotions feel like for someone. And, and thinking about that, it's often the, the fear of the storm is sometimes greater than the effect of the storm itself, right? Hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit and, and come back to something that you shared earlier, which is really interesting to hear in terms of the timeline you were talking about the no harm contracts and it sounds like up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that was still a pretty common intervention. Um, and I'd imagine that's something that's not done very often today for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could speak to some of the other ways um, that both the research and uh, intervention mechanisms have shifted around suicide. Yeah. Well, there's been less of an emphasis on mental disorders and more of a focus on suicide specifically. So I think for a long time, the idea was if you treat the depression, you're going to treat the suicide risk. And I don't think that the data really supports that. Instead, there have been plenty of examples of not just individual studies, but what we call meta-analyses that combine a bunch of studies together pull their data so that they have even more power to test effects that have been able to demonstrate that the suicide-specific interventions really seem like they can help reduce suicide attempts and they can help reduce ideation. They can help increase the likelihood that people connect with ongoing outpatient services as well. So that, that has been a major leap forward. I think that uh, dialectical behavior therapy was kind 
kind of first on the scene in terms of, you know, trying to address suicide risk specifically. But it wasn't just around that. That was really also to help people that um, had diagnoses of borderline personality disorder and um, their experiences of extreme emotion dysregulation and having been in very invalidating environments that made them vulnerable to, you know, having those emotional intense moments. Um, and then there's a cognitive behavior therapy protocol for suicide prevention that was tested in the emergency department. And that was a whole protocol that was 12 to 16 sessions that demonstrated, uh, I think it was about a 50% reduction in suicide attempts among people that had been admitted to the ED uh, for an attempt. And um, that was across 18 months. So that had a really big protective effect. And, and then you start to see other treatments kind of pop up, uh, like the collaborative assessment management of suicidality, for example, where it's more of a therapeutic framework about like, how do you facilitate this discussion about what someone is experiencing with their suicidality and what's driving it? So that whole treatment, it, it, it helps basically identify what they call drivers of suicide, where what, what's most directly related to your thoughts about, about suicide. Um, now, there's a lot of commonalities you know, among different people, but the point of it is that it's personalized. So instead of saying, here's my theory on why people are suicidal, this is the treatment that we're going to use. It's saying, well, let me first understand and have a discovery process with you about how it is that, you know, you, you experience this. And then we'll develop the treatment plan because we've got all these evidence-based strategies that we could use to address this. So I think that the field has kind of shifted where people are better about uh, looking at those types of factors that are related to suicide risk versus um, looking at the mental health disorder per se, which is still important. You know, that's what you might consider more of an indirect factor because it kind of creates maybe the kind of the context out of which direct drivers can kind of, you know, come about, if you will. So like, you know, if you're disconnected or if you have chronic pain, if you have some substance abuse issues, if you're struggling with depression, those things, most people who experience those things are not suicidal, right? But they create dysfunction and dis-ease and they can really impact quality of life. They can, you know, when you kind of combine those with negative life events, that's maybe like when some people might start experiencing more of those suicide specific experiences like hopelessness, or feeling like a burden or feeling really disconnected. So I think the field's better about, you know, training people to address those factors when they're trying to help people who are suicidal. Thank you for sharing that. And, and I want to come back to that in a second, this, this idea of treating one's suicidality versus treating the mental disorder itself. I think that's a nice segue into the zero suicide model, which I'm hoping you could explain. Yeah. But first, you mentioned something that I was hoping to talk about as well, which is the uh, collaborative assessment tool, I believe CAMS is the short name for it. Right. I'm hoping you could explain that in a little bit more detail and how that's actually implemented and utilized in screening and assessing one's uh, intensity around suicide. Okay. Well, full disclosure, you know, I worked with Dave Jobs in graduate school and continue to collaborate with him afterwards. So just so that people understand that. Um, I, uh, 
CAMS kind of started off as an, a great assessment approach that was informed by the best theories in suicide prevention. And it is a collaborative assessment where sit next to someone, you have them fill out a form that goes through these very suicide specific types of experiences like psychological pain, stress, agitation, hopelessness, and self-hate and um, rate those on a Likert scale, but then also write out in their own words what contributes most to that. Then you ask them um, you know, a variety of other questions. Two really important ones are, what are your reasons for living and what are your reasons for dying? So you're actually asking people specifically, tell me why, what are your reasons for dying? And then how much do you wanna live and how much do you wanna die? And all of that just really helps populate a treatment plan. <laughs> it helps me, right, as a clinician, understand you as a human being, because I don't want to be over here acting like I know everything. You know, you're the expert on your own experience. I am trained in an expert in behavioral health and suicide prevention, but like, this is your journey, and I'm going to be with you on that. So we need to actually kind of make you an expert in your own suicide experiences make you a suicidologist too so that you really kind of get this stuff you know because um, it's your life so it started off as more of an assessment and then um, Dave kind of made his way into the clinical research world and slowly but surely just started accumulating evidence um, that this helps people reduce their suicide ideation that clinicians really like it that you can plug it into a lot of different systems of care. People don't have to tra trade in their approach for therapy. They don't have to like stop doing everything that they're doing and just do this, kind of like integrate it in. And, um, you know, now it's, there are uh, several CAM studies that NIMH supports for youth, for youth in the context of also receiving um, a rapid reduction type of, of intervention like, like uh, ketamine. And then kind of taking those CAMS principles and putting them into um, uh, a, a really nice kind of digital package that can be offered in emergency departments for people as they're just waiting around, waiting to be served. And um, you can actually do something really therapeutic while, while you're waiting uh, to see, you know, a provider in the emergency department. So it's, it's really interesting. You know, it's an approach that's kind of been integrated into a lot of different areas. Yeah, it seems like as the landscape continues to evolve, a big factor is just learning what the right questions to ask are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it seems like that's a big challenge that's being worked through is just understanding how you get to the core of someone's experience with something that is as intangible as suicidal intensity. Uh, yeah, most definitely. And, uh, you know, the obvious thing that was missing for a long time was the lived experience expertise being infused into all of these. And we are at a place where that is much more present and the intervention approaches and the implementation approaches are all the better for it. So that was a, a real missing ingredient that thankfully is becoming more present. Absolutely. You talked a little bit about um, some CAMS tool that's specific for youth. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences that are out there in, in terms of intervention uh, mechanisms be, uh, between youth and, and adults, how those differ? Oh, right. Well, 
I think that the bullying issue, you know, is a big one. Um, and the way that social media potentially could serve as a risk factor, you know, depending on how someone is interacting with social media, the messages that they're getting and things like that. It, those are so specific for you, for sure. Um, but there's also a lot of commonalities, you know, in terms of feeling disconnected or feeling like a burden. I think that you find those things are present in both young people and in, uh, in adults. So, you know, the, that CAMS tool has been validated in youth. I helped publish that study. Um, but there's only one intervention that's been replicated for demonstrating that it reduces risk of self-harm in youth, and that's BBT. Mm -hmm. um, NIMH funded a multi-site trial at, uh, in UCLA and University of Washington uh, where, you know, that was the case. It, it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a slam dunk because there still were people in the BBT arm, you know, that um, reported self-harm. So there's still ways to optimize or enhance that. Uh, but that by far seems like that's, that's the one intervention we can point to that has been replicated. There are other approaches too that um, are very promising or that have demonstrated efficacy maybe in one study. Uh, there tend to be kind of versions on safety planning, cognitive behavior therapy, motivational interviewing, and some follow-up services. Um, and there's often a family component to that as well, where you, you, you try and put families into the driver's seat of how they can be helpful <laughs> with the treatment plan, and you, you want them to be allies and, uh, and feel like they're playing an active part too. Yeah. You mentioned bullying, and, and I'm curious if we could pull on that a little bit further. The idea of bullying and mm -hmm. uh, social media. When I think of the idea of perceived belongingness uh, for a child, that, that's something I imagine being pretty common, right? Especially maybe amongst teenagers. I know it's something I can relate to, the feeling of not belonging mm -hmm. um, as, as a child or as a teenager. And I'm wondering how that crosses the threshold into suicidal ideation or self-harm. And I'm wondering if the data out there supports and suggests that that bullying is actually a large factor uh, in that shift happening. Well, I, you're, you know, you're kind of talking about trajectories. I don't know that we have enough good longitudinal data, but we know cross-sectionally that bullying plays a, a, a very significant role in um, some, you know, a youth's suicide experiences. And mm. you wouldn't say that every youth that is bullied is gonna become suicidal. Um, the progression towards ideation and attempts and, and deaths is multivariate, it's very complicated. There have been no predictive statistical models that have successfully shown that this combination of different experiences equals, you know, any of those things <laughs> equals equals like death by suicide for sure. So there's a lot that we don't understand, um, and there's just so many factors that are involved too. So there was one paper that uh, demonstrated that youth who were bullied, bullying itself was not associated with ideation, but bullying with 
the youth also reporting higher levels of feeling like a burden or feeling disconnected, I can't remember which it was, was really associated with a much higher risk of ideation and, and maybe it was attempt as well. So yeah, you're kind of looking at like these combinations and that would make sense because it's like, how, how do I make sense of this experience of being bullied? And what does it mean about me as a person? Is this a really crappy experience of like, uh, you know, being in an invalidating environment and, but I know that I'm loved um, or, it, you know, is this something where I'm already kind of feeling bad about myself and maybe I'm, I'm either subjectively or objectively not supported by a care network. And so what these people are saying to me in this bullying kind of context, it hits even harder. So, yeah, I don't know that we have the data to really kind of uh, definitively say how and to what degree it contributes to the trajectory. We just know it's really important. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And and regarding bullying specifically, uh, just just kind of curious if if you have any experience around this and understanding if it's something that is actually more prevalent and happening more frequently with tools like social media, mm-hmm. or is it something that we are just more in tune with being able to detect and focus on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that we have the answer because a lot of it's confounded by time. Um, you know, you just didn't have the opportunity to be so persistent in bullying when you didn't have social media tools that you could use. But I think that a lot of people hypothesize that kind of the inescapable nature of social media kind of doesn't give people a a chance to rest and reset and escape, literally, right? Mm. To escape and just sort of feel safe. If If there's sort of this hovering other presence out there and that's way different than, you know, like the time when I grew up um, graduating in 1997, it, it just these things were not around. And so, you know, when you left school, you left school and you had to be around people that, you know, might've been treating you bad at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm hoping we could go back to something we talked about uh, in, in the no harm contracts. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if like that, if you could point to some other things that we've found that are actually ineffective or maybe even harmful as an intervention method, things that have been commonly used in the past. Hmm. Um, nothing sticks out as causing untoward effects necessarily at that, you know, I don't know that we've shown that anything, well, I I will say this, the way that the media handles suicides can have untoward effects, and that has been documented. So there are now media guidelines about how newspapers and news outlets report on deaths by suicide so that it helps decrease the likelihood of of contagion. Um, Mm. That's not really an intervention per se, but that's a really important lesson uh, that we've learned. And I, you see most major media outlets, um, you know, tuning into that. One of the most important aspects of that is to always communicate that um, we have treatments available that do help. And um, that there, even though people might want to reach con- like a really kind of simple conclusion about why someone takes their life, it, it never is a simple <laughs> case. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that's happening. So we, we don't want to sort of, you know, 
try and, and uh, arrive at those conclusions when we, do, we might not completely know what's happening. But really communicating that um, there are treatments that help and that you know, the reality is that most people who have suicide thoughts don't make attempts. Most people who make attempts don't make another attempt. Uh, and most, most people who you know, make attempts don't die by suicide. Mm. So we know that these are survivable experiences. The vast majority of people survive. And people who have uh, mental health disorders, they, um, if they can you know, manage their, their mental illness, that significantly reduces their risk of suicide too, which kind of points to the importance of connecting people with treatment. Um, I think the field has definitely progressed. You mentioned zero suicide. You know, it's definitely the case that as the field was studying interventions, it's kind of reflecting what the clinical reality was out there, which is that the provider was kind of on their own. You know, the, the field was siloed. And so the interventionist is kind of there. They've got the responsibility when in reality, the person that they're treating is engaging with a much larger system of care. <laughs> and so that zero suicide model came out of this idea of what does perfect depression care look like? The Henry Ford uh, Health System received um, a CMS challenge grant around perfect depression. And they were brainstorming, what does that look like? And uh, a nurse spoke up and said, well, perfect depression looks like nobody dies by suicide. They were like, okay, well, let's engineer our whole health system so that we hit that goal. And um, for a period of time, their health system actually had zero suicide. And there was really a, a rapid decrease in the amount of suicides in their health system over time. There have been a few other health systems that have reported similar gains when they instituted that more systems approach, but we still need a lot more science to help indicate what are the most effective elements of the approach and um, do it in a very rigorous way. So NIMH has a couple studies that we fund specifically kind of testing those, either the whole package of zero suicide or testing distinct elements of it to see how effective it can be. Um, if you don't, if you're not familiar with that model, basically seven different pillars. Three of them have to do with the organization and leadership and, you know, continuing care processes and looking at your data and trying to figure out what's working and what's not working and, and doing training, you know, for everybody in your health system. But then there are four different um, clinical aspects, which is, you know, you got to identify people. Um, you want to help them manage their suicide risk and you facilitate care, the engagement piece. And then you are going to do some intervention with people, which we've talked about here. And then importantly, like we kind of touched upon earlier, the, the care continuity piece. So when people are moving from one clinical setting to another, you, you make sure that they don't fall through the gaps. So in this way, the whole system is working together versus that that older way where each person kind of does their job and they say, let's get that person to outpatient therapy and now everything rests with the outpatient therapist. You know, this is more of a system that's built to, to help someone, you know, survive. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm hoping to pull a little bit further on 
understanding the model. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how how frequently is it something that you see deployed? Because it sounds like the success of it is really dependent on the, the number of players that are part of the system, right? Yeah, you're seeing this implemented all over the world. Um, uh, our federal partners with uh, SAMHSA, the um, um, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Agency, you know, one of one of the main areas that they support suicide uh, implementation is in zero suicide. So they've had several different notices of funding announcement going out all different types of places across the country that, that are implementing this. So you're seeing a lot of rapid uptake. Are there other similar models out there or is zero suicide really the, the model of focus right now? You know, there are similar models. It, it, what, what that zero suicide approach does is it provides this like really helpful framework and they have tools in place that are really useful. Like they have what, what we call a fidelity tool, which is where you get to see how well are you, what your practices are that they match up with their model. And um, the paper that demonstrated throughout the state of New York, hundreds of different community behavioral health organizations, those that were had greater fidelity to the zero suicide model had fewer suicide attempts and suicide deaths in their clinics. And the two main factors that were associated with risk reduction were ongoing um, kind of uh, care um, improvement processes, the quality improvement processes, where you're doing more training and, you know, you're kind of helping, um, helping things stay fresh and providing more opportunities for the, you know, the practitioners. And then whether or not the clinics used lethal means counseling. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, um, just universally helping create safer environments for people while still respecting, you know, their desire to own firearms or, you know, their desire for independence, their desire to keep themselves safe. These are collaborative discussions that are happening. Uh, But those were the two main factors that were associated with with risk reduction. Um, So, yeah, so it's it's good. I, I don't think that zero suicide alone kind of has the market on that. The VA, for instance, I don't think that they technically are using the zero suicide framework, but essentially they're doing a lot of the same types of things um, with proactively identifying people, making sure they get safety plans, um, making sure they get really good treatment and then doing a lot of continuity of care and then looking at their records, you know, to to understand the effect that it's having in areas that need improvement. Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And and you talked a little bit about lethal means counseling. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, the final question I have. And then I definitely want to give you an opportunity to to share anything maybe that we didn't touch on that you're involved with. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of of my intention in setting out and starting this podcast, I'm, I'm certainly no researcher by any means, right? But one of the things I find myself curious about is the what appears to be the shifting demographic in in highest risk populations for suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. If I understand correctly, um, I'm, you shared that I think it was 70% of veterans are using firearms as a method. 
if I understand correctly, I believe uh, men are four times like uh, four times more likely to use lethal means when attempting suicide. Hmm. And I'm wondering what what your take is on the shift that seems to be taking place in terms of the age range that is at highest risk of of attempting and completing suicide. Well, um, about forty percent of firearm suicides occur in people 55 years and older. So the, the, the rate of uh, suicide is, is really high in, in the oldest, oldest uh, uh, people. So a lot of it has to do with the means that are being used, frankly. Um, you just, you see that um, it's, it's so loaded in those age groups compared to the younger age groups that that helps account for a lot of the differences in who actually dies by suicide. I I think that that's probably one of the most important aspects of that. There, you know, there are various um, groups that have, they might not account for the highest proportion of deaths by suicide, but they have really high rates, much higher rates than you would see right, in the general population. So people who live in rural areas, for instance, have much higher rates of suicide, even though proportionally they don't account for the majority of deaths by suicide. But that's really important to know. And we know that there are maybe the drivers of their risk is different than people who live in more urban areas. Maybe there are aspects of you know, how they see themselves and how they view mental health services um, as being <laughs> not not as, um, you know, aligned. It might be that they, people know your business a little bit more in smaller communities. And so maybe there's more fear about stigma um, versus in more urban areas where more people, but in some ways you feel a bit more disconnected sometimes. Um, or at least more anonymous. And so I think that you've really got to kind of look at these different groups of people and understand their own experiences to kind of try and explain what it is that contributes. Say for um, LGBTQ plus individuals, um, they have higher rates across you know, lifetime and across different um, uh, genders of um, suicide thoughts and suicide attempts. But you could probably attribute a lot of that to their experiencing stressors like discrimination that then kind of create the context for feeling hopeless or disconnected. You know, so there are, there are multi-level kind of factors that, um, that contribute to risk, but that informs multiple level interventions too. So, you know, you have individual level interventions, you have interpersonal level, you have community level, and then you have societal level. So it kind of starts with that public health understanding of risk, what's specific to different groups, and then how you can kind of address that from different levels, because you're going to have to have different strategies. You know, you can't just have kind of one blanket approach to, to address risk in different groups. I'm wondering if if those higher rates also manifest in other groups that faced similar discrimination. Is that is that something that's been researched and and has any data to support? 
Um, well, um, American Indian, um, Alaska Native communities, um, the, the youth in particular have extremely high rates uh, compared to the, the general population. Uh, that risk goes down as, as they get older, um, but potentially they're experiencing more of that as well. Um, you know, other groups, I, I don't know that the data is necessarily there. I, I know that there is, is now burgeoning data that demonstrates that discrimination uh, among um, black individuals is distinctly associated with suicide experiences as well, above and beyond other the impact of other social determinants of health. Um, so I think that we want to learn more about that. NIMH is funding research specific to black suicide youth um, in, in black suicide prevention in general. We have had several uh, announcements over the last few years and we funded a number of, of grants in that area. So yeah, those are often you know, areas where we're looking for kind of high rates and in seeing whether or not um, there's enough science there to inform, you know, in the, the clinical strategies, the public health strategies. That's a lot of what our role is, you know, yeah. is that we're, we're not trying to make sure that everybody has access to mental health practitioners. That's our federal partner's role. We help contribute to that. We're part of this conversation, but so much of our focus is where are the gaps in science that are preventing the best care from being delivered? Is it because we don't know what the best care looks like for all people? Or is it that, you know, we're having really hard times, just having a hard time just getting it out there. Like we know what works, but for whatever reason, we can't implement it. So we fund science in that area too. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. It's been really comforting and informative to understand the amount of attention, focus, and research that's going into understanding this issue. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm wondering, I, I want to pause at this time, if there's anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to share or delve into, is there anything that comes to mind? Uh, no, I thanks for asking me about my own research. It's been a long time since I talked about that. <laughs> that's not my that's not my bag anymore. So yeah. uh, I had to sort of try and dust off some of those files in my brain. Um, <laughs> but I I appreciate you asking me about that. And you, you know, I just I hope people would take away from this discussion hope for the future that number one, we're listening and we're being responsive and we're trying to be proactive and we're trying not to be reactive. You know, we're trying to be good stewards of, um, you know, the, the funding that we have control over and we're trying to diversify the workforce uh, in terms of who's conducting suicide prevention research. We need people out there that really reflect the, the different populations that they're working with. Mm. Um, and, and we need strategies, you know, that are sustainable and scalable that can be delivered with equity um, across all types of groups. So I, I just, you know, I hope that people understand that. And, um, you know, if, uh, if, they, if they want kind of a higher level uh, sort of, you know, review of some of this information, they can go to the NIMH website. But it, it's definitely... Um, not like the the main resource, I would say, if someone wants to really dig into this. There's the Suicide Prevention Resource Center that's funded by SAMHSA. 
that, um, you know, that's federally funded and there's all kinds of videos and information on there, um, often geared towards um, practitioners and systems of care, um, trying to create the workforce that's, that's ready and competent to help people. But there's plenty of stuff in there that, you know, as a consumer or someone with one's experience that, you know, you can learn a lot from that as well. Thanks for sharing the resources. Those are things that I will definitely link in the show notes. Um, and that's probably my biggest takeaway from this conversation is, is hope and uh, just feeling reinforced by the idea that there is a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of suicide prevention, uh, intervention, and research. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me today. I appreciate the work that you specifically are doing, as well as broader the work, uh, the work that NIMH is doing. And yeah, thanks again for taking the time to chat and hope to get to speak with you again soon. Okay. Yeah, Rob, thanks for hosting this. Um, it's really important. And um, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. O'Connor. Appreciate it.